economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Lawson Medlin, producer and graduate assistant elect for the Gortney Institute. Today we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, our graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right, so today I thought we'd take a little journey into renting versus owning. Peter has a little story to tell, and we thought there's some interesting concepts that come in with the decision of should I rent, should I own? And uh, I've got certainly about a thousand stories to tell being in property management for about the last 30 years. So um, Peter, take it away. <clears throat> yeah, so this last weekend, uh, well, we I should start even before that. A few weeks ago, I began to get suspicious that we had a water leak on the property because my water bill is usually 30 or 40 bucks and it came back to be 70 bucks. Uh, and doubling water usage for August, you know, it's not totally crazy. So I was kind of hopeful. I'm like, maybe I just used a lot of water because it was hot outside. <laughs> I knew in my heart that was a lie. Uh, but I held on to a little bit of hope and I went and checked my water bill ahead of time at the office uh, about a week ago. And it was $100 this month. And so it was getting worse. It didn't make sense that it was getting worse because September was not as hot as August was. Uh, and my family is not going to jump from using like 2000 gallons a month to 10,000. Like this is just a crazy jump. <laughs> so I knew something was wrong. Sure enough. So I, you know, the next thing that I have to do is I have to go under the house and shut off the water because my shutoff for my house is actually under the house. So I go into my crawl space, which by the way, in, in itself <laughs> is miserable. Like it's a tiny little hole to get into the crawl space and everything. Uh, every time I go down there, I cough for two days. Uh, so I shut off my water. And I go to the water meter outside and sure enough, it's still spinning. The little triangle that indicates whether water's flowing is still spinning. And so that's like bona fide proof. If, you're, if your water's off in your house and your water meter's still going, it means somewhere in between the water meter and your house, water is shooting out. Uh, and of course, being in Kansas, that water situation is underground, right? <laughs> this is not like a warm state where we can put our water lines above the ground and be happy. Uh, so underground, I have this big old water leak. And so I called out plumbers and, you know, he said, well, worst case scenario, you're looking at $3,000. Uh, that was not the actual worst case scenario. I don't say how much <laughs> was, but, uh, that's what he said, worst case scenario. Uh, and so they started digging and they exposed the water line. And he said, well, your best option, honestly, is to replace it all at this point. And I agreed with him. I didn't want to redig everything. Uh, so the other downside of my house is that even though it's nice, uh, appearance wise, I've got a big wraparound porch. My house is totally surrounded by porch. There's no option to go under the foundation without going under the porch. <laughs> and so the plumber said, basically we can do three things. I could take off your porch or dig the trench for you under the porch, but it's going to cost you, you know, my hourly wage, which is way too high to pay <laughs> for that. He said, or you could hire someone else or do it yourself. So of course, uh, being a new homeowner, I am <laughs> foolish and I decided Rolled to do, up your do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I spent 
uh, I, I've been saying a dozen sometimes to make myself feel better, but it's probably 20 hours uh, <laughs> digging a trench over the weekends uh, to get under my foundation so they could replace the pipe. His knuckles are bloody and he comes in, they're shaky. That's here. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I still have numbness in my right hand's <laughs> fingers here. Uh, hopefully that's what it's from. But anyways, uh, so as I was digging my trench at two in the morning, finally made it it under the foundation, I hit like a rock and a clay pipe at the very end. And it, I, at that point, like, I just kind of gave up. I thought, oh, I'll just let the plumber deal with the rest. And my thought while I was down there was like, man, I really wish that I was renting right now. <laughs> uh, I really w wish I had a landlord. And so that's kind of our segue into today's topic of uh, why landlords are actually a really good thing. Yeah. So that is where the money shifts over to the landlord and landlords get accused of, oh, you're making so much money. I'm paying twelve hundred dollars you know, a month in rent. And, yeah. and they're not really taking into account these contingencies. Um, yeah, you probably heard this before us being a landlord yourself. There's like a, it's actually really uh, vitriolic rhetoric against landlords, like more than maybe any job in the entire world. Like people will call landlord leeches. They'll say that landlords do absolutely nothing, that they're no good. Basically, they just have a bunch of money and they drain the blood out of poor people until they're dead <laughs> and make profit off of that. Like this is, and I'm serious, like this is not an exaggeration. If you go to Twitter, you search landlord and Twitter, you're going to find tweets that say exactly this stuff. Uh, and that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is kind of an insurance policy, which we thought would be interesting to bring up. And, and that was actually one of the first questions when Peter described the problem. I said, do you have the insurance? There is an exterior waterline insurance policy that runs me about 70 bucks for the sewer line and 70 bucks for the water line. And they will pay for that $3,000 bill if you have it, if it breaks. Um, so there are uh, some policies like that. But really, the landlord, in a sense, is your insurance policy, too. So if if you do the numbers on renting versus owning and and um, let's say um, renting comes out a little bit higher, even though a lot of times it might be lower, depending on uh, if, what you're comparing um, dwellings to, um, paying a little bit more can be like an insurance premium, because if the furnace breaks, you don't have to pay for it. If uh, the water heater goes, you don't have to pay for it. Water heaters are running about a thousand dollars. Uh, the roof I just replaced on a property I'm doing is $7,000, and that, that's a relatively small roof. So um, there's a lot of big ticket items that, um, so a tenant that's cycling through for a year or two uh, doesn't see some of those big hits that happen periodically with owning property. Yeah, and I, I think it's funny that Russ mentions the, the roof. Like, what do we want out of houses? People don't buy houses just to, like, have a house and be like, hey, that's my house, and then they leave it and they never go in it. Uh, houses exist for specific purposes. Keeping weather out. This is one of the major purposes of a house. Climate control. This is another major purpose of a house. Running water. Third major purpose of a house. Notice the commonality between these things. Keeping weather out. Roof. Climate control. HVAC. Water in. Water line. These are some of the most expensive things to fix. Fixing a roof. Fixing an HVAC system. Uh, fixing running water. Uh, these are ridiculously expensive. And so what the landlord's job is, at least in a big part, is basically being this like risk uh, capturer, is that when you invest in any asset, real estate or otherwise, what you're doing is you're taking on a pretty significant risk. And it's not only the risk of the physical deterioration either. Right. Uh, yeah. as, as a landlord, you're dealing with market risks. <clears throat> yeah. And so when you rent out a house, 
part of the value is it's not just the rent that you're receiving, but it's also the value of the house itself. And so if you receive $10,000 in rent a year, 12,000, for those of you on the East and West Coast, this sounds crazy, but it's pretty reasonable for Ottawa, $1,000 a month. So $12,000 in rent a year, but also the real estate market collapses and you lose $40,000 of the home value. Sorry, you're at a loss of $28,000 for that year. Doesn't matter how much rent you collect, doesn't matter if the person was perfectly on time, uh, value-wise, you have lost money. Yeah. And so there's this crazy thing where not only do you have to stay uh, positive, but you actually have to beat other investments too, which I know, Russ, you've done a lot of this balancing yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, when you said market, I thought something different because you have to deal with uh, tenant, um, sometimes craziness as well. One of the most telling examples was an apartment we had just uh, somewhat remodeled, had new carpet. It wasn't more than a couple of years old. It was probably about a year old. And this tenant um, didn't pay the rent for a while, right? And so we, we hadn't paid for like, it was six weeks. We probably let it go a little longer than we thought. So I finally go over to the property to check and it's all cleared out as I expected, but there was this foul odor and so I went into each bedroom oh, of gosh. a two bedroom apartment and then the living room. And there is a piece of meat in the center of the room in uh, each one that had been sitting for at least three weeks, if not longer, because there was maggots growing all over the steak and the meat and the foul smell. And so that one cost us at least two grand in carpet. Uh, just to recarpet everything and get the smell and the cleanup out of. So that's another type of risk that hasn't been that uh, landlords have to take on. And and there's been other um, similarly bizarre, but that one sticks out in my mind was pretty disgusting. So, Justin, do you have any experience renting, landlord, anything related? I've been a, a good tenant and a bad tenant. And... <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I can remember one time when I was in college, we, uh, uh, I think we filled our sink with dishes probably, uh, you know, in the third week there. And then we never did the dishes. And then when we moved out, we just left all those dishes in the sink because it was so disgusting that we didn't even want to lift up a plate. And that's, uh, that looks bad on me as a person, but that's what we did. And, uh, you know, the landlord had to eat that just, um, so I think that, um, you know, uh, landlords take on a lot of risk. And one of those risks is, again, dealing with people who are as irresponsible as I was when I was younger. Yeah. So as I grew through my uh, property management and then uh, developing apartments, um, I started to hedge, try to minimize our risk as a landlord. So it started with making exterior common areas was through the design of the building. So there's a uh, something in economics we call the tragedy of the commons. And so the common areas would get trashed because nobody had any ownership or responsibility of the tenants, especially being mostly we catered to the younger uh, college crowd. And so it started with exterior decks so that it was easy to clean and easy to see. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so we uh, designed a couple apartment buildings that way. And then as we got into some larger structures, uh, we ended up using polished concrete in the common areas because we were so sick and tired of changing carpets and carpet squares yeah. and different types of flooring. Um, so different ways that landlords could try to overcome some of that um, issues that we have with people not being responsible, having kind of a moral hazard uh, 
once they get into the place, uh, what does it look like? Uh, you'll notice today, uh, maybe you thought it was all kind of a trend, but it really started with rental properties, all the snap and click flooring, the hard flooring that's pretty much bomb proof, pretty much waterproof mm -hmm. now. That is all over the place in rental properties because it's pretty pleasant looking mm -hmm. and uh, it, the landlords aren't replacing carpets like they used to. So now you have to buy your own area rugs, which is something I started. I, I started moving the polished concrete concept into the apartments and then students had to buy their own area rugs uh, as we move through time. So so lots of little issues like that. Yeah. Um, so I think the, this looks like a good time for our break. And uh, when we come back, I wanna get into this uh, issues of moral hazard and adverse selection, like who do we attract in the rental market? And once they do sign up, what are some of the issues that we face? And then where does the government fit into this? And uh, maybe our faith. Uh, I know I've prayed to God a few times, especially when the market was crashing, that uh, it wouldn't go down to, to speak to some of the market risk. Um, you know, where does where does housing, renting and owning fit into into your faith life? We'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute at Auto University is the best place in the Midwest for free enterprise education and its contribution to human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. We have some great high school events like PPE Fest. We just had 29 high school students here at Ottawa University for a night of uh, afternoon of uh, games and entertainment and just education at its best, learning about our PPE League. And we offered scholarships to these students to come to Ottawa University to be a part of the Gortney Institute and what we do with our competitions. Jim Gortney was our lead speaker and visited the campus and we got to talk about his Common Sense Economics book. If you're a high school student interested in earning some college credit, we have an online microeconomics class for motivated high school students seeking to earn early college credit. It's affordable, flexible, and layered with support. Our new online microeconomics course is optimized for dual credit and will increase your students' college readiness. Contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Okay, so we're back. And uh, I wanted to just jump into one faith quote that's come to mind that I learned a while ago, and it was from Jeremiah 29, 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may too have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So it's kind of a nice passage that talks about our time on earth and kind of living out our vocations in different ways. And it doesn't hesitate to say the importance of households. And uh, here it says build houses like Peter was building his, uh, trenching his line and, and contributing to, to the repair of his house. Uh, but renting houses would fall in there. But being a part of a city, and I think the importance of relationships uh, is what I like about that, about that verse. So um, let's see. Peter, you want to jump us into, you thought uh, you had a little more to say about landlord fixing, that we get kind of a raw, raw deal? Yeah, so this is a, another, I, I actually have written an article about this because, at, you know, at least after I have this incident in my life, I can make my job of writing articles a little bit easier and, you know, <laughs> write about something that I know pretty well now. 
Um, and I kind of anticipated one of the responses, which is like, you'll get this crowd of people who will complain that landlords actually don't fix anything, right? Uh, that they sit around and they don't do things. And now I will say to some extent, there's probably truth to that. We'll get there in a second. But for major fixes, like for the, the case that I was facing, it's certainly true that any landlord, even the evil, greedy, mustache twirling landlord who's just out there to steal <laughs> all my money, uh, even that landlord would have fixed my pipe in this case. And the reason is obvious. Uh, if you are leaking thousands of gallons of water into the ground right by the foundation of your house, uh, that's going to destroy the value of the house. And so any sort of major repair that's, you know, the house is either going to be destroyed or not by this thing, or you can imagine like termites, you know, this is another example of that termites in the house. Well, it doesn't bother the tenant that much that the termites are in the house, uh, but it's definitely going to bother the landlord. <laughs> and so anytime the landlord has to risk their value by not making a repair, they're going to make the repair, even if they're greedy. That's one of the nice things about landlords is there's that match of incentives actually between the tenant and the landlord. There's a lot of repairs both of them want fixed. It's not like, a, you know, you're just going to have to live with the water leak sort of situation. I wish I could have lived with the water leak. I would have taken the, you know, $70 a month extra on my water bill rather than pay the plumber. That would have taken a really long time to, to reach my amount. But what I didn't want to do is lose the value of my house by the foundation collapsing or by me reselling it and having to be like, by the way, there's a big old water leak under the ground. Yeah, so. yeah. There, there is a lot of... Uh deferred maintenance type items that can go on for sure. sometimes years though, where tenants are like, oh, this landlord's not doing anything. So I, I, um, I'm all uh, free market, as you know, but uh, and there's and probably some inefficiencies due to the nature of the good sure, and, but, and it's such a bundle, but, in, but you're right in general. For and sure. in a free market, eventually those tenants can get up and leave, yeah. right? You're right, Russ, that like maybe you're on a one-year contract and this person, uh, Mises used to say that you can trick people into buying a bad product once, but you can't do it twice. <laughs> and so once you're in that house and you're like, oh, this landlord won't fix anything for me. They're not doing anything to help. Uh, after your lease is up, or even sometimes before that, based on the law, but after your lease is up, you can get up and leave and never go back to that landlord. And you can know, oh, this landlord stinks. I'm never going to go back. And that's information that can transmit pretty easily in a marketplace. The other thing that tenants wouldn't appreciate from a market standpoint is that, oh, well, you're paying $100 under market rent to live in a place I don't want to fix up. So, right. yes, you're still complaining that the this isn't fixed and this isn't done and this isn't done. Uh, but it was actually compensated in the value of the rent. Yeah. And, but that doesn't matter when the tenant's actually in there. So that that's often the case, especially in some college housing where... Uh, the the rents start to go up in a given year, but maybe it's still under market. So that that one's hard to digest, and and so I think landlords might get some criticisms because of the nature of that. Yeah. Now let me give my suspicion here about the types of places that people are in who complain about this frequently. My guess is if you look for if you ask renters, do you have a bum landlord who won't fix anything for you? the people who give you a yes answer are going to be located in specific geographies. They're going to be located in cities in California and cities in New York, New York City especially. Uh, and why do I make this claim? Well, I think it's the case that a lot of times when landlords won't fix things, it's because they're, you're in an environment where there's pervasive rent controls. And so Russ said before break that, you know, government interferes with markets. One way this happens is government will send like maximum rents that landlords can charge to the people who are you know, leasing from them, from tenants. Um, and here's the problem with these maximum rents. 
is if there's a maximum amount of money that you can make renting out your property to someone, uh, then that's going to limit the number of people who want to engage in renting. And when you have a limited number of sellers, limited below what the market would provide otherwise, there's less competition between sellers. And so it's no longer the case that you can be like, my landlord sucks, I'm going to get up and move because there's no housing available because you know no one wants to get in the housing game because they can't charge the rent that they need to charge to make profit. Yeah. And so you know if you're in this place uh, in your life where you've got this bum landlord who's not fixing anything for you or they're trying to take advantage of you or things like that, uh, I would recommend looking up the municipal rent control laws and seeing uh, if you have them. My guess is you probably do. Yeah. Justin, you had something about the vitriol against landlords you wanted to add to? Yeah, um, it seems like uh, landlords, and Peter mentioned this earlier, landlords come under more vitriol than warranted, but not only more vitriol than warranted, they they also seem to come under a, a, uh a disproportionate amount of it relative to, you know, there are bad, uh, bad workers in any industry, right? Um, mm-hmm, right. But landlords do get singled out. And it's, I actually think that there's a, uh, there's a theoretical reason for this. And I think that if you look back in like political philosophy, landlords get singled out by people like uh, Marx and even like Henry George yeah. um, as being uh, unusually, um extractive in the sense that, you know, um, the landlord class was for Marx a prototypical example of the capitalist landed gentry who was just using their ownership of the means of production to extract surplus value from laborers. Um, and even Henry George, when he's talking about the land, he he seems to make the assumption that, uh, you know, since the land is just there, you can just own it without doing any improvements and, and extract rents from this land that you merely just own. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, what what you guys have been pointing out is that that's that's really not the case to to make your land be productive at all requires quite a substantial investment. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think this is where George especially was very wrong. Um and, and, you know, maybe he still has a case about something like physical living space. Uh, you could say maybe there should be Georgism for, which we, we don't get into. That's too deep of a, a pile. But uh, th- this idea that like a landlord is extracted because the land's already there. It's like, yeah, but you don't demand a house for the land that's like just sitting there. Right. The, the thing that you want out of the house are the things that I mentioned before, the weather protection, the climate control, the water. That's not already there. The electricity isn't already there. Those things are services which have to be provided and main, maintained, as I learned this weekend. You know, you can ignore them for a long time. You can Your water pipes can last you literally decades. And so it's really easy to just forget that the water actually has to be brought into the house and just assume like, oh, this will just happen. I turn on the faucet and the water comes out. It's so great. Uh, someone who's never owns property, uh, owned a house, who's never had to deal with a repair, or, you know, putting that in. Uh, probably does think of it like it's this magic thing that just like you turn the sink on and water, or you turn the water on and it comes in. I thought this way. I'd never thought about how water gets into my house, at least in detail. I guess if you would ask me, I could have come up with the right answer. Uh, but it's, I, it was so abstract. When it, once it becomes more concrete, yeah, you can see that like if Georgism does apply, which even the theoretically, I think there's a little bit of bunkness to it. But if it does apply, it's in a very limited sense. And it's in a sense that no one would really care about. Like the physical living space is such a small part of what we're purchasing when we're purchasing a house. Yeah. 
I think the wastewater going out is the one that baffled me even more. That yeah. It all just comes together. Everything you put down the drain in your house all just eventually merges into one and heads out to someplace I don't want to go to. So for me, it's my second <laughs> tank in my backyard, which um, will not have problems. Go ahead, Justin. Secondly, I want to point out that I think the the role that landlords play in somebody like, you know, Marx's capital is something like the the absolute richest of the rich who are just nickel and diming these day laborers who work at factories. Um, and I think if you look at what what actually happens in you know the contemporary world today, um, especially if you are anywhere outside of um, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and or even just San Francisco and New York, um, you'll find that land uh, your landlords are really more like uh, very very small mom and pop businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like the richest um, the richest of the rich who are who are the landlords. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that I think you're right, Justin, and that that's somewhat of a historical artifact. Where you know, when I mean, Marx is writing in the transition from feudalism, right? And yeah, so, yeah. being a landowner in the 1700s in England, and even actually up to the early 1900s, uh, it was much different. You inherited this land, and in some cases, it was actually illegal for you to sell the land. It had to be in your family. Uh, and you know, everybody who lived under you had no chance of owning property in their lives. They were barred from owning the property at any point. They had to be renters. This is a much different situation uh, than a world where, yeah, like Russ has as like a, a, a part-time thing on the side is a landlord. He's not like this rich mustache twirling inherited from his family <laughs> landlord. And that's where how he makes his entire career. It's like there's a lot of just individual people who are landlords on different levels. And again, maybe New York City, you get a little bit closer to them. Maybe they would have to be super rich to own an apartment building there or something like that. Uh, But this is really just a historical artifact to some extent, this hatred. Yeah, but it's easy to be like a 19-year-old college student and read Marx talking about landlords. And then uh, when Russ is your landlord and go, I knew that guy was a jerk. (laughs) Right, right. No wonder that guy hates Marx. There's an old saying, and it really pertained to farming originally, but my boss related that to to, uh, owning rental property as well, that you're paper rich and cash poor. So on paper, you might be a millionaire because you've got... $4 $4 million of property and, and uh, $3 million of debt. And so you're, uh, you've got a million to the good, but in reality, you're relying on those tenants paying their cash and you need to make those mortgage payments and there's property taxes and insurance. And so there might not be a lot of cash from month to month, which is kind of similar to a farming situation where yep. some farmers are multimillionaires, but they're just scraping by with the crops that they plant or the rents that they get. That's right in facilitating that. So paper rich and cash poor is something that I've, I've always kind of hung my hat on for uh, if you decide to get into real estate, that uh, might be your might be your situation. And I think the, the property tax part of it is another interesting area where we see governments uh, being able to, let's say, pass legislation through the process because voters have this perception of landowners, especially multifamily. So in different states, uh, multifamily housing can get treated differently than single family housing. And so it's a little easier for them to like kind of, oh, let's just tax the rich. Let's get the landlords. And, and there, there might not be a lot of wiggle room if there's actually healthy competition in a rental market. Like up in Lawrence, it's pretty competitive. Um, their rents are in some ways cheaper than they are down here in Ottawa uh, because there's just a, a, an abundance of apartment dwellings. 
And so really there's not a lot of cash to tax, quote unquote, tax the rich um, in a lot of times, but yet that type of legislation can be passed and create some inefficiencies. Justin? I just want to connect this back to something we've talked about in the past in this podcast, which is a wealth tax, right? And if you are paper rich and cash poor, something like a wealth tax really can hurt you because you don't have the cash on hand to pay a tax on uh, your assets, which might not be liquid, right? And so what you have to do in that case is liquidate some of your assets. And you so uh, things like a wealth tax really end up hurting people who are good stewards of uh, large assets. They just, uh, and because of that, they don't have um, a lot of liquid assets to, um, to cover those kinds of wealth taxes. All right. Luke, what were you thinking on this topic? Well, to kind of continue, yeah, the low on cash, high on assets. And you look at a lot of universities, universities have same some kind of dorm life and tend to be now four or five different kinds of dorm life options, and they have different costs associated with them. And it's the same kind of mindset to me that they're acting as a landlord with other amenities. And so they have they feel they have the right to charge a higher price and fix the price at a certain level because you have to pay the room and board. So they have been acting kind of like landlords as well for students my age. Yeah, for sure. That it can be a, or at least it's looked upon administration and they might not have the property manager or real estate owner mindset, but they're like, oh, that's a little profit center, right? We can, yeah. we can throw in some amenities and we'll, we'll, we'll make some money on housing. Tuition, let's say, is real competitive with other competing schools. And, and so it might be a decent way to attract new students, but uh, finding that right balance between uh, what the what the price is and, and kind of this bundle of goods that we offer university students, which is a combination of possibly athletics and academic life and, and actually being in the classroom and then being in your dorm room, that bundle of goods um, can be tricky to try to navigate through. What's kind of funny about the college example is like, this is a little closer to the example that like Karl Marx would have been mad about, right? Uh, where, and, and this, it's funny because if you look for, if you go to do the Twitter thing that I told you to do about searching landlord and finding the vitriolic comments, a lot of those comments are made by like university professors. This tends to be a group, <laughs> like, you know, sociology professors love to criticize landlords, right? Uh, and interestingly, universities are probably the closest thing that we have to like the old landed gentry in the sense that like the university system is very heavily uh, subsidized. It's very hard to compete in. You, dear listener, cannot probably start your own college successfully and compete in the industry because there's just a lot of regulatory hoops. It's supported by the student loan thing. And so the weird thing is like, uh, universities can put like clauses in your contract as a student that you have to live on campus for a certain amount of time. <laughs> and I don't think that sort of thing is like necessarily bad, but when you pair it with a system that, for example, uh, there's a lot of state schools that I doubt could exist without taxpayer dollars and taxpayer subsidized student loans, you actually start to get this situation where you have kind of a privileged landlord position. Uh, and maybe you can like overcharge. Now, I'm not saying any particular university does that. I actually don't think OU does that. OU is not nearly rich enough for me to think they overcharge for anything. <laughs> uh, but there are probably some state schools. Again, I'll say California. This may be an example uh, where those schools are totally dependent, would not exist without particular government uh, innovations or interventions, rather, not innovations. Um, and they're able to charge more rents and require more students to live on campus because of that. And so it's interestingly enough, I think maybe the closest thing to uh, the landed gentry of feudalism uh, might be universities renting out and requiring <laughs> students to uh, right. live in their housing when they're required. Yeah. Yes. 
extra layer, especially the first year of school is when most schools require yep. is that first year. Yeah. It's just like guaranteed profit. And like, okay, yeah. now you can go do what you want to. We now the, they would push back. And I, I think there's good data for this, that uh, retention rates are higher when kids live on campus. Yeah. So if they live off campus, they might leave yeah. your and, university. And I, so, so there are some good reasons. Uh, yeah, but, I think there, yeah. Can, there can be good reasons for it, but it is weird when you've got a, a university that's totally supported by the dole, basically in right. one form or another, that's now doing this. It's like, now you have a weird, like government supported feudalism to a certain extent. And like, that's weird. Uh, but insofar as this would arise under like free competition, I think it's fine. And I think to some extent it would, I, I agree that sometimes it's in the best interest of both the student and the university. If the student lives on campus yeah. for whatever reason, it tends to work out. Yeah. Lawson, what was your uh, question thoughts on this? Well, we've talked about a lot of benefits with uh, renting and landlords. So why doesn't everyone just rent? Why, why do we still have homeowners? If you know, everyone could landlords would take care of the properties for them. Well, what do you guys think would be the benefits of rather just owning your own house than renting all the time? Yeah, so ultimately, um, I think there is a, it can be a good spot for wealth building. Um, my analysis over the years is that as long as people stayed in their house for two years, they would likely break even after paying real estate commissions to get out of the house. And um, you'd have to be taking into account any maintenance and some other things. But if you kind of compare renting versus owning, at least when I was selling real estate pretty heavy up in Iowa, uh, holding onto it for at least two years would be a break-even uh, proposition. And then what happens is a lot of times people say, oh, I'm just going to own this house for three or four years. And then what I notice is they don't own them for five or six years. And so um, if, you're, if your interest rate's not too bad, you're, um, especially if you got a 15-year mortgage instead of a 30, but most people do 30, um, you're ultimately chipping away at the debt. Uh, on a 30-year mortgage, though, most of your payment is interest early on, so you're not chipping away that much. So what you're really playing on is the appreciation of the property over that time period that you hold it. And so in most markets, you might be reasonably expecting 2 to 3% per year on average. So you buy a house for 100000 and it's 103 next year and 106 or 105 the following year. Now, along the way, you have to be maintaining that house. So when the roof goes down or the paint, and so that's the balancing act. But um, that's the way you uh, build wealth in real estate is by having that appreciation. And in today's, uh, when I started looking at real estate, trying to be uh, rich that way in the 80s, we had come out of the 70s. And the old rule of thumb was, oh, when inflation rates are high, get yourself into real estate because that's a big asset that's going to climb in value. Mm -hmm. Funny how those words are resonating true today now with our eight, nine percent inflation. Um, you should start to reasonably expect your house, if you didn't overbuy in the first place, uh, could be climbing and might be a good rate of return through appreciation only, uh, yeah. let alone debt reduction and some other things. So. Or we'll hit a stagflation or and, we'll... <laughs> and, and the crash will make values right. worse if while you, prices go up. If you bought at the top uh, of the bubble or something, well. Which hopefully is not the case. That would be a nightmare yeah. if that did happen. So, And honestly, if it was a, a bubble here recently, now that we've had true real inflation, that might offset that bubble. So yeah. it, it, it won't crash. It'll just maybe flatten or yeah. something. Yeah, back to the original um, price yeah. that you purchased that or something. At. Real prices are catching up with the, yep. the previous bubble, if that was the case. Yep. So, All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap. Um like to thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gwartney Institute at Ottawa University. Uh, we have uh, a donate page if you're interested in supporting our podcast, as well as 
Those donations also fund the other activities we do with college students and high school students. So be sure to hit that page if you'd like to support what we do. We appreciate it. Otherwise, pass our podcast along to friends and family that you think would enjoy it. Be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.